You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Have you noticed our world is getting a little bit more intense? Our world is growing, I believe, in intensity. Sports are more intense. And then they find new ways of doing new sports that are even more intense, right? Our world is growing in intensity. A power politics between nations is growing more intense. Uh, even politics between nations and, let's say, movie studios have grown in intensity this year. Humor is far more intense. If you look at funny movies, the ability to try to be funny has to elevate and escalate its intensity just to try to get a laugh. The internet is more intense. Videos are more intense. Our world is growing in intensity. This last week, we took a few days uh, between Christmas and New Year, and my wife Heather and my kids and I, we all went uh, up the Northern California coastline to like Bodega Bay and Fort Bragg and some different areas that had never been there, saw this beautiful coastline, enjoyed a lot of the redwoods, which are these trees that are over 300 feet tall. They're just massive. It's God's fingerprints in creation. When you see that stuff, you're just in awe of it. Like, yeah, I don't think Elk Grove would let me plant one of these in my yard because uh, given enough time, it could you know, be really dangerous. Right? I'm driving down the 101 thinking, if one of those redwoods falls over, it literally like the lower third will just cover all the lanes. And then it would just be the rest of the tree, you know, off in the, in the forest. I think it's just, they're amazing. And you just see God's fingerprints on that stuff. And we saw some beautiful area. And it was really great just to escape a few days and get away and uh, enjoy that firsthand. But one of the places we went was Bodega Bay. And uh, as we were in Bodega Bay, we looked around and we were reminded of the Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds. How many of you ever seen The Birds? Right? Okay. Now... We realized as we began to talk, and we're dating ourselves here, uh, that my, my boys had never seen the birds. So when we got back, we said, well, we got to show you the birds. So we checked it out, and we showed them the bird, and, and like, it was almost laughable, like, that this movie that was, like, the pinnacle of intensity and a thriller back in that day, like, the special effects were bad, and the, you know, the acting was overly dramatic, and it was, I mean, there was just all this, but that was the pinnacle of intensity back then, but you just watch and see how far our culture has changed, right? How much more intense it's made everything. And all of a sudden you begin to realize, wow, our culture is growing. Our world, I believe, is growing in its intensity. The question is, are you and I, as the church, are we escalating our intensity equivalently with the world, to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a church, are we increasing our intensity so that we can actually capture the hearts and the minds and the passions of students in the next generation and our current generations right now? Are we escalating our intensity? Because I believe that in your life and in your job and in your patterns and in your faith, it's far easier to slide into complacency than it is to escalate your intensity, right? It's easier to get out of shape than it is to get into shape. And that's the way it normally works. But in 2015, this year, especially here at Sun Grove Church, but wherever you attend, that for your life, I want this to be the year of spiritual intensity 
in your life, I want you to nudge your neighbor and say, this year, I'm going to find my intensity. Ready? Nudge your neighbor. Tell them that. This year, I'm going to find my intensity. Yes. There was a guy who faced an intensity moment in his faith journey. It was the half-brother of Jesus, a guy named James. Now, you have heard of like Peter, James, and John. These are three of Jesus' disciples who he was really tight with. This was like the inner circle for him, Peter, James, and John. But this James, who wrote the book of James in the New Testament, is not that James. In fact, this guy had a closer relationship with Jesus first. Because this is Jesus' half-brother. You say, well, half-brother, what, what, did Mary get divorced? No, it's Jesus' half-brother because Jesus was born of God and of the Virgin Mary, where James would have been born of the natural way, Mary and Joseph being in relationship and having a child. So this is Jesus' half-brother, James. James who grew up with Jesus. James who understood intensity. I mean, could you imagine the comparison game in that family. Here's James, just like you and me, normal in our flesh. And here's Jesus, who never sinned, ever. And you had to compare yourself with that. And every now and then you might do something, and you'd be like, wow, that was kind of cool. But, uh, you know, you just, you'd be James. And James didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was who Jesus said he was. He disbelieved. He was probably embarrassed about that relationship. Did you ever notice that sometimes when a man gets embarrassed, he gets angry, and sometimes the anger is really a cover-up for embarrassment. It's not just anger for anger's sake, but they're embarrassed, and so they get a little bit angry. And I'm sure in James's life, there were plenty of opportunities where his comparison to James, that he got a little embarrassed as James's life was compared to Jesus that maybe some of the things Jesus did were embarrassing as other people talked. Hey, James, your brother, he's like going out and doing all these things and he's preaching this stuff and he's ticking off all the religious leaders and he's doing some miracles, but this is your brother. Is, is he like the real deal? And James going, I don't think he is. And then he could get angry and why? Because he might be embarrassed. And then Jesus is killed with intensity. You don't get more intense than being crucified publicly. And in that moment, any aspiration, any inner hope, anything inside of James that would think, if only Jesus could be who he said he is, was dashed, destroyed. In that moment, hopes were crushed for James. Jesus lay dead in the grave. And any suspicions about his brother being a fraud were maybe in that moment cruelly realized because he thought he's been killed, he's dead, he's in the grave, and thought things would turn out differently. But it wasn't over for James's faith journey then. You ever think about that word? Then. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul, who writes this book, has a little statement that changes everything. If you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, 
It says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, which was Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time. That's quite a crowd. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then, then he appeared to James. Paul goes on and says, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. This little statement, then he appeared to James, changes everything. This one little statement, could you imagine it just got real? Could you imagine for a moment, Jesus, he's dead, he's buried, and then he rises from the dead, and here's James the doubter, and he just doesn't know, and he's like, you know, this is my, he's my half-brother, I've seen him, I'm, I'm probably too close to realize the reality of who Jesus is. Then Jesus, in the flesh, appears to his brother, man to man, brother to brother. And it was at that moment that James believed and put his faith and his trust in God, his faith and his trust in Jesus. From that moment on, the former doubter became a strong believer. He finally embraced that Jesus actually is God and has been all along. And he put his faith and trust in that moment in Christ. Now this man, James, knows about hardship in life. His family had to move around at different points in time. We don't know what happened to Joseph. We think that James's dad, Joseph, died along the way. We're not sure because after the account of the escape to Egypt and moving back into Nazareth, we don't hear about Joseph any longer. We only hear about Mary later in scripture, but James now had the opportunity to leave his past and his former doubt behind and walk into a faith and escalate his intensity because he knew who Jesus was. Now, let me under, help you understand. He knew Jesus, knew all about him, was really close to him, knew lots of factual evidence about him, but he did not know Jesus as God. And this then moment changes everything for him. Sure, I've heard of Jesus. Sure, in fact, I'm his brother, like we're related, and yeah, we grew up together. But that didn't save. That didn't change his doubt. This moment did. Then he appeared to James. Open your Bible, if you will, with me to the book of James, chapter 1 in the New Testament. By the way, if you uh, don't have a Bible, you can download one called YouVersion on your mobile device, and that's a great way to have it. But bring your Bible with you to church every week so that you can follow along and unpack these scriptures as we're going to go through the entire book over the, about the next five or six weeks. This book is written then by James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is not some sort of like nepotism book trying to get the masses to believe in some sort of family religious activity. Instead, he writes a book to answer other doubters of the Jewish race who were scattered all over the world, but who doubted Jesus just like James doubted Jesus. So here's now James's half-brother writing to the rest of the Jewish populace around the world 
saying Jesus is the real deal. In fact, this book becomes one of the most practical books in the Bible for how those of us who have put our faith and our trust in Christ really live. Like, how do we practically live out what we know and believe about Jesus to live with intensity in how we think and how we speak and how we love others in faith? So James chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is one of those statements in scripture that people throw out there all the time and, and think that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have trials and tests and temptations in your life, that you're supposed to be like fake happy. Like, ah, Jesus, you know, and like you're like a zombie walking around or you got your eyes glazed over and you're just like happy in some weird way, you know, and, and you're like, no, that sounds like a cult. You know what I mean? Where like people talk to you and they don't blink, but they just keep talking to you and they're just, you're like, are you going to blink, please? Are you? One of these points you might blink. That's not what he's talking about. And when he says joy, he's not also talking about happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. Happiness can be fickle. Happiness is momentary. Joy is a confidence in who God is and what God is doing that will help carry you through any test or trial or temptation. Joy is a confidence not in your abilities, but in the abilities of Almighty God. So he says, consider it joy, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. What's he saying? Listen, he's saying people understand the identity of Christ, and once they understand who Jesus is and who they are in relationship to Jesus, they move into formation. Formation is that season in your life where you're tried and you're tested and you're tempted, and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to do good things, but there's going to be some up and down along the way. And we have to go through those things because no pain, no gain. There is a season of growth. There is times when you are going to fail and fall on your face. There are other times you are going to build spiritual muscle that enable you to carry more than you ever could have before. There are times that these experiences in your life are going to cause your faith to grow and be strengthened so that you will know where formerly I had to navigate life by myself, I now understand that no matter what I go through, Jesus walks with me and I with him. And there is power in the presence of God's Holy Spirit, which is beyond my abilities. Formation. Why should we have joy? Because it's an opportunity for increasing the intensity of your faith and of your life. James goes on in verse 5. says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. 
For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers a plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. What's James James explaining here? He's explaining two things. Number one, that the Christian should view trials and tests and temptations in their life as equalizing opportunities. That just like trials and tests and temptation equalize the person who's rich or the person who's poor, when a tsunami wave on December 26, 2006 swept into the island, the coastline of Indonesia, as we watched shocked on the news, suddenly your wealth of the person in Indonesia whether they were poor or rich, didn't matter. It was just survival. It was just grief. It was just loss. Trials have this way of becoming equalizing opportunities. And this is in a culture where the rich were so elevated in James' day that they literally looked at the poor people as simply, you know, people who could, were ripe to be oppressed, people who were to be taken advantage of, people who you could cheat and steal, and they had no recourse to come back at you. They were looked at more as property than people. And James is saying trials are impartial to a person's social status, to their wealth or their title. The poor Christian, he's saying, is exalted. If you were poor and you're going through trials, tests, and temptation, consider it joy. Why? Because you're growing, you're being elevated by God. The person who is rich who is normally self-sufficient, when they go through trials and tests and temptation, they are humbled in God's perspective, which is a good thing because the humble person becomes more teachable as they go through trial, tests, and temptation. They are equalizing opportunities. But sometimes what you're going through, the situation you're in right now, the trial that you've been experiencing, and believe me, I know at the end of last year and through December, just hearing some of the loss and the pain and the hurt and the, some of the bigger things that have happened in many of your lives, it's just a difficult season. And that trial, that test, that temptation that you're in right now is opportunity for you to grow. But what happens to us is sometimes you and I walk through a tough time and we feel the pain of it and we go, okay, I want to like step away from the pain of that. Because it, it froze me. Like, I, I walked through it, and I, I felt victimized by life or by somebody else or by the circumstances. And when we get victimized, then we become frozen because we just don't like pain. But what happens is when you and I become frozen, we become unwilling to learn in the tough times. We have to stop the victim mentality. This opportunity, that pain. This is your then moment. Then Jesus appeared to you in your time of need. Then Jesus had opportunity to show up when all your resources were expended. Then Jesus met you in your time of need and promised he will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He won't necessarily pluck you out of it, but he will be there with you to guide you. This is your then opportunity formation. It's an opportunity to increase the intensity of your faith. Well, how? How does that happen? 
Fortunately, James gives us some insight. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And when tempted, no one should say, Well, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You and I are under the curse of sin. Every person dies, one out of one. You can't get away from that stat. There were celebrities who died at the end of last year. They make lists of these people. There are plenty of people who never made one of those lists. There comes a day when you and I experience the consequence of sin having entered the world, which leads to death. But in our spirit, God created us for eternity. It's why death is such a violation that God has created us to live forever somewhere. And James is saying, the one who had the power to conquer death appeared to me. That moment changes everything. So what's the nature of a person who is born into a sinful nature, who is born into a world under the curse and condemnation of sin. Well, for you and me who experience the flesh, as long as we're in this body of flesh, then we understand what James is talking about in verse 13. He says, no one should say, God has tempted me, for God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. But when each person is tempted, when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. You understand what that's like, right? I want to do what's right, but there's still this evil desire within me. I want to succeed. I want to pass every test but there, and, and walk through every temptation with success. But there is still evil desire. As long as I'm in this body of flesh, there is evil desire that exists within me. But praise be to God who has freed me from this curse of death, that there comes a day when this body dies, but my soul lives forever with Christ. And I am not condemned in my sin. But as for now, we understand that after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. There's a pattern going on there, and I want you to catch it. It all starts with how we think and feel. That That's why Christ countered temptation with Scripture the word of God. It's why you and I, when we are tempted, need to utilize the very word of God to counter temptation. We need to know him. Formation is an opportunity for increasing intensity. It's an opportunity to meet Jesus and experience blessing in your hurts and your habits and your hangups. Now, it's interesting, the, the word there for trials it, it, trials, tests, or temptations, it's really just all the same word. It's the Greek word parasmos. And what it means is, contextually, how you deal with the trial, the test, or the temptation determines which use of that word it would be. 
If it was a test and you did well, you, then you passed the test. That was only a test. If it was a temptation, well, there's 50-50. You could pass it or you could fail it. If it's a trial, you could grow through that trial or it could freeze you. It could clog your spiritual growth. You've got the chance to respond to temptation with spiritual intensity, but there's a warning. Not allowing trials, tests, or temptation to build character can result in bitterness against life or against God. And James doesn't want us to go there. Verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And please understand, again, it's a, a Jewish person, half-brother of Jesus, appealing to all his Jewish national friends and family uh, you know, across the world who scattered. And in one of that heritage, he's saying to them, my brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. That's a mouthful, but you go, what is he saying there? I love that phrase. He gave us birth through the word of truth. Christ referred to as the word, the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits. What's the first fruits? The first fruits are the, the stuff you collect from your agriculture as the very first fruits and you bring it to God as an offering and you give it away. You don't eat it, you don't partake of it, you give it away. And he's saying, listen, for those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, that he chose to give us birth into new life through the word of truth that we might be an offering, a result, the first evidence offered up to God from all he created. Those who are freed from the condemnation of sin and death because of faith in Jesus, the one who conquered death, God himself become flesh. This just might be your then moment. Verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Let me time out right here. This is great relational advice. You've probably heard it. You probably have read it somewhere. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. And then you might throw in, if you can't say nice to anyone, don't say anything at all, right? And if someone breaks up with you, punch them in the face and go get ice cream. Seriously, just go get ice cream. I don't know. That's bad relationship advice. But this right here is great relational advice, no doubt. But I got to tell you, this has no relationship intent from James regarding just another person. He has just introduced that we, God has given us birth through the word of truth, Christ himself. And then he goes on, and in context, he's talking about the word of God. So the parentheses here are mine, but I want you to read this in a new way. He says this, everyone should be quick to listen to the word of God, slow to speak about the word of God, and slow to become angry about what the word of God tells you and I to do. He's just talked about, are we teachable? Are we willing to let trials be equalizing experiences? Are we willing to humble ourselves? And now he's saying, we're in regard to the word of God that we need to be quick to listen to it, slow to speak about it, 
and slow to become angry about the word of God. Why? Because verse 20, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. What happens? You and I get in a trial, a test, or temptation. And sometimes we look at the word of God and we don't like what it says. We think it's restrictive. We think, well, I disagree with that. I choose my thinking and my opinions and my will, what my flesh wants to do over what God's word is telling me to do. And sometimes we read God's word and it almost seems offensive to us and to the views in our culture. And James is saying, well, slow down. Slow down. Anger or irritation to God's word clogs the growth faster than a blood clot clogs a vein or an artery. And when that happens, your soul starves. And some of you have been starving for far too long. Your soul feels empty. Everything you try to find meaning in just is empty. Everything you try to do that you think will bring peace to your life doesn't bring peace to your life. And your soul is crying out for a relationship with the very word of truth, God himself, God, the word who spoke all creation into being, become flesh in the person of Jesus Christ who paid for your sin on the cross, my sin on the cross, and said, through faith in what I've done for you, you can have new life. And some of us have come into that life. And some of us walk with that life and we say, I know Jesus. But you're treating Jesus like a half-brother. And you're not listening to his word. You're knowing about him, but, but you've not slowed yourself down to listen to the word of God, to get yourself in the word of God. What if you said this? Believers in the room, what if you said this? No Bible, no breakfast. What if you started your day, if you're a night owl, what if you ended your day and prepared yourself for the next day, your heart, your mind, your attitudes, the next day? Some of you need two-a-days in the Word. Some of you need three-a-days. Some of you need to walk in relationship with Jesus throughout your day, but you need to interact with what he says in his Word like you talk to him with your mouth. What if we were quick to listen to the Word of God by reading it? Slow to speak about it so we're understanding it. We're not just glancing at it. And slow to become angry about what the word of God tells us to do when we were to let God's word begin to divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and get to the real issues in your heart and my heart and begin to clean out that wound and bring healing to your hurts and your habits and your hang-ups. This could be your then moment in 2015 to let the word of God speak into your life, to, let, to listen to God's Holy Spirit. This could be your moment in 2015 that you would say, in 2015, Jesus appeared to me. He opened my eyes and all my defensiveness against the Bible and his word and organized religion and everything else clears and life begins to flow back into my spirituality and my soul begins to come alive I begin to find my smile and it's authentic and intensity begins in your life and when that happens here's how we respond 
Verse 21, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Literally, that phrase at the end is which can save your souls. What's he saying? For those who want their souls saved, the part of you that lives forever when this body's gone, humbly accept the word. Humbly accept the world. Why? Because when we're proud, we decide what we want to do and what we don't want to do. And when we're proud, we, we end up entertaining everything in our head and in our heart. And God is saying some of that stuff is dangerous for us. Some of that stuff brings death to your soul when he wants to bring life to you. And humility is one of the keys there. When you and I humble ourselves, we get off our high horse. When we get down to ground level, when we begin to say, I will humble myself and begin to listen and let the claim of the word of God have access to my life and my behavior, humility is that key. And humility teaches us that we might be putting up with a high degree of moral filth in our life without thinking that we're filthy at all. We might actually be putting up with a huge amount of tolerance of filth in our life, but think ourselves as relatively clean. But the soul won't be betrayed because it knows its creator. And your soul will come alive when you acknowledge who Jesus Christ is and you begin to let him speak into your life and heal you, and walk with you. So let me ask, are you teachable about getting rid of the things that would hinder your faith? Are you teachable about pouring into your life the word of God? James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. What's he saying right there? He's saying, listen, if you're a glancer, you forget what you read. You just kind of glance at it and you go back and you glance again. If you're a glancer, he's saying, the, actually, the glancer in this verse parallels the person in verses 6 and 7 who is double-minded and they're unstable in all they do. They might just glance at God's word, and, but they can't make a decision. And they, they don't know really how to seek the Lord and find out, Lord, what would you have me to do? And they're, they're just glancing. They, they glance and forget, and they walk away, and it hasn't taken root in their life. It's not pouring into their life. They're unstable. They're double-minded. They're going to give equal weight to the word of God as a friend's opinion. And let me tell you, as high regard as you have for your friend, those two are not equal but that one should be elevated. Verse 25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard, but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want a blessed life? Do you want to be in the center of God's will? Verse 26, those who consider themselves religious, yet don't keep a tight ring on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religious is worthless. Religion that our God, our Father, accepts is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What's he saying? Faith 
without results that are active in your life. It's dead. And he's saying, listen, that what we think comes out in the ways that we speak and what we believe in our heart and own in our head comes out in our actions and what we do. And James is saying this to a culture that, listen, we're looking to elevate their richness and oppress those who had no voice. And let me tell you, there are modern-day orphans and there are modern-day widows in our culture. The issue here was that these people were promising. We promise to act on your behalf, but they really were just elevating themselves instead. They were indulging with all their wealth, with all their resources. They were saying, yes, we should care for the poor. Yes, we should care for the person who has no voice. Yes, we should fight for those who have no fight in them. And we should stand up and we should meet the needs of those who are the least of these. And, and they would say that, but really they were just pulling it all into themselves. People at the margins of the social, economical, and legal landscape are always open to being exploited. And because of that, they suffer distress. But I'm so proud of Sun Grove Church because you, the people of our church, have an awesome reputation in reaching out to the people at the margins of society, whether it's being downtown and preaching the gospel and feeding those who are homeless whether it's opening our building to the winter sanctuary and letting the homeless in Elk Grove come right in here and spend the night on these cold nights and shower in our showers before going about their day. Whether it's reaching all the way to India and rescuing little boys and girls who are being sex trafficked and giving them the gospel and the good news of Jesus, but also the practical help sufficient to help change the course of their life. And so much of what we do, whether it's putting shoes on people who need shoes in Title I schools in Elk Grove, or whether it's buying a friend a cup of coffee and sitting down and just saying, do you have any idea who Jesus really is? Can we just talk about that? There's hope in the trial that you just told me about. There's hope in the temptation that you cannot get beyond. There is hope in the test that you're facing. Well, Sun Grove Church, in 2015, we're going to increase our intensity spiritually. In 2015, we are going to increase intensity in how we reach and mature children and students. In 2015, we are going to increase intensity in how we worship God at our weekend services. We are going to increase intensity in how we walk men into authentic, godly manhood and what that looks like. We're going to increase intensity in how we walk women into noble womanhood where on Tuesday nights when we start. Heather, what's the name of that? Proverbs 31, thank you. I blanked this morning. We start the Proverbs 31 ministry up. It's a 12-week series where you ladies can understand your identity in Christ and get in formation relationships with other sisters. In the same way for men this year, we will start an identity piece that helps you walk in formation with other brothers. We're going to increase intensity in how we endure hardship in that thing that you're going through right now, in the unseen things you and I will face, in the equalizing opportunities that all of us will walk through. 
We will endure. We will be persevering people. We will endure. We will be strengthened. We will not be complaining people this year. We will increase our intensity to be the hands and feet of Jesus and not complain about the world's problems, but act on behalf of those who are oppressed. And we are going to increase intensity to reach the lost with the life-saving power of the word of God and to preach it in here and to live it out as we, the church, live it out out there. Yes, we're going to increase our intensity. We will find our intensity this year. Nudge your neighbor again and say, this year, I will find my intensity. Do it. This year, I will find my intensity. This, right now, could be your then moment. Perhaps right now, God is calling you to read his word. Just read the book this year. I just started a reading plan. I'm going to read the Bible in a year. It's about four and a half or five chapters a day, and it tells you what to do, and it's on my smartphone. It tells me what to do, and it gives me a reminder, and, and guess what? I'm loving it. Just getting into the word of God and letting it speak to me. And I don't want to just be a glancer. I don't want to just, I just don't want to like read the book and say, fine, I read the book. I got to get in the book because I need the book to get into me. And so do you. I'd encourage you to download a plan like that. Walk through it as we get God's word in us. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Just thinking about your own life, I want you to ask the question for a minute. Do I believe Jesus is God? Am I willing to give my life to him today? And if today is your then moment, maybe it's no accident that you're here. Maybe you're all the way here from Modesto or Merced or you're here all the way from somewhere else, but God, it's no accident you're here today. God is reaching to you. He is appearing to you. He wants to speak to the issue of your soul. He's drawing you out of his love. He is not here to condemn you. He loves you. And today, if you would like to surrender your life, just humble yourself before God and say, today, God, I'll say yes to you. If you'd like to have your sins forgiven, washed away, and come into a relationship with Jesus as God, that he is God, then you simply pray a prayer right where you're seated, just silently in your seat, right after me, you just pray this. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive me of my sin and to free me. from the curse of sin on my life. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, and that you rose on the third day and ascended to God in heaven as God. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer right where you were seated, will you just raise up your hand? Everybody's heads are bowed, their eyes are closed. I got a couple friends who are wandering around. If you got your hand up, will you leave it up? I got some friends who just want to give you some information about the decision you made. And so they're going to come find you. Awesome. Greatest decision you could ever make. So good. Awesome. Awesome decision you made right down here in the front row. We've got some people being baptized today, and, and quite a few of them made decisions for Jesus just back in November. 
and they're just walking in a new relationship with him. Anybody else around the room, you just hold your hand up long enough, they'll find you. God, we're so grateful for you. We thank you for enduring more intense circumstances than we could imagine to suffer on behalf of sin that you never committed. We did. And so, God, we are so grateful for your sacrifice. We're going to remember that sacrifice this morning as we go to a time of communion. God, we thank you for what you're doing to bring new life. We thank you for the then moments in our life this year where you will show up and you will prove yourself to be God and you will reveal yourself to us because you love us. We praise you and we thank you. And all God's people said, amen. Some Grove Church, will you give it up for what God's doing with us? Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.